All right, this is the third in our series, Can We Trust the Bible? For 17 centuries, Christians have believed the Bible is inspired by God and fully reliable in all that it says. Then beginning with the Enlightenment, 715 to 1789, over the last uh, three centuries, people began to adopt naturalism as their view of life. There is no God. Uh, there are no miracles. So they began, looked at the Bible and said the miracles we see in the Bible cannot be authentic. They had to be made up by the writers to kind of make Christianity look more popular and attractive. So, uh, mass ignorance today of the Bible, where so many people have never read the Bible, never gone to church, when somebody says the Bible's not true, the, 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 uh, the miracles really didn't happen, there are lots of errors in the Bible, what can people do to, to respond to that? Every December, religious pollster George Barna publishes his top 10, 10 findings of the year. From his top 10 findings from 2014, he wrote, Bible skepticism is now tied with Bible engagement. He writes, for the first time since the Barna Group and American Bible Society's Bible engagement tracking began, Bible skepticism is tied with Bible engagement. The number of those who are skeptical toward the Bible, who believe the Bible is just another book of teachings written by men that contain stories and advice, has nearly doubled from 10% to 19% in just three years. This is now equal to the number of people who are Bible engaged, who ride, read the Bible at least four times a week and believe it is the actual inspired Word of God. Uh, you may be one of the more than 19% who are Bible skeptics, uh, this year, Barna published, 19% uh, of people are Bible engaged, so that number stayed pretty constant. But the number of Bible skeptics has gone up, and he found that 35% of people last year never opened a Bible. So with widespread ignorance of the Bible, it makes it difficult for us to have confidence in the Bible. So can we believe the Bible is true? Can we build our lives on the truths in Scripture? Teenager, single person, married, parent, grandparent, we need to know why we can believe the Bible is true. I believe we can believe the Bible is true, and I want to share with you six reasons we can believe that. One, the claims of the Bible. Now, any ancient writings... You open it up and you read it and you assume that what it says is true unless it proves itself false. Uh, when we read ancient writers like Euripides or Tacitus, don't we assume that what we're reading is true? That, he, that they actually wrote it? The Bible's a public document. When we open it, we begin by believing it's true. So what does the Bible say about itself? The Apostle Paul writes, all Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, every word in the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek were inspired by God so that when the writers wrote, it came from God and he saw to it that they wrote without error. 
Now, unless the Bible proves it, uh, uh, says something that proves itself false, we must assume its claim that it's all inspired by God is true. A second reason we can believe the Bible is true is the documentary evidence. The documentary evidence for the Bible is without parallel in ancient literature. Uh, so we have of Plato seven manuscripts. Uh, the, the early, the uh, the latest, uh, the earliest dating of these manuscripts is 900 A.D. That means the gap between when Plato wrote and what we have is 1,200 years. Yet when we read Plato, we assume, don't we, that what we're reading is accurate. Euripides, we have nine manuscripts dated earliest 1100 A.D. That gap is 1,500 years. Aristotle, we have 49 documents. Uh, earliest dated 1100 A.D., that's a gap of 1400 years. We assume when we read Aristotle that it's true. It's actually what he wrote. Josephus, we have nine manuscripts dated earliest at 1000 A.D. It's a gap of 900 years. Look at the difference with the New Testament. We have 24,000 documents. The more documents you have, the more you can look at them and cross-check them and know what the original said. Does that make sense? The earliest we have are dated 100 A.D. Those are papyrus documents, fragments. Uh, they're not all the New Testament, but fragments of John or the other Gospels or Paul. Uh, those are written on papyrus plant plants. Uh, and then uh, we have 307 uncials. Those are written on animal skins like goats and sheep. The most fascinating one is Sinaiticus which is dated 350 A.D. It's the whole Greek New Testament. And then we have Vaticanus dated the same day, which is virtually all the New Testament. That's only a gap of 300 years or maybe 275 years from the, when the original is written. Now, as to the Hebrew, scholars begin to, to say, you know, that adopted naturalism, that the miracles in here can't be true. So they had to be made up after the fact by the writers. And there are errors in here. And they were going along fairly well until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. A, a Bedouin boy in 1947 was looking for his goat through a rock in a cave. He heard pottery, went in and found all these pots filled with scrolls that were wrapped in linen and wrapped in, in leather. They were so well-preserved that they'd been sitting there for 1,900 years. And as I told you last week, the most fascinating part was the Isaiah scroll. They found that, and uh, they found that the Isaiah scroll was almost identical to the Masoretic text. The Masoretes were the most careful scribes. In, in, remember, until the printing press, the only way you could pass on the Bible was by scribes writing it out line by line from one manuscript onto a new one. Well, anybody knows that if you're copying something, you can make a mistake, right? But they found it was virtually identical with the Masoretic text, which is dated 916 A.D. And the one they discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls was 125 B.C. So over a thousand-year period, the scribes have been so exact that they found very few differences 
And if you find that's the way the scribes took care of copying, you can assume from 125 B.C. back to 700 when Isaiah wrote that they took the same care. So when we hold these books in our hands, we can be almost a certain. When we're reading in English, which is now a, a translation of these, and it's done so carefully as the NIV, which is what we use here under the seats, that we're virtually reading almost identically what God inspired in the first place. Does that make sense? Um, so we assume Plato and Aristotle's true when we read it, and we can have all the more reason to believe the Bible is true. Now, the third reason we can believe the Bible is true is the scientific evidence. Archaeology. Archaeology involves uncovering artifacts, art, architecture, coins, monuments, documents, and other remains of ancient cultures. If you're trying to ascertain the truthfulness of an ancient writer, you can look for accuracy in details such as archaeology reveals. For example, if a friend says to you, last week I drove from San Francisco up to Portland, and at the halfway point, my friend and I stopped at the In-N-Out Burger on Crater Lake Highway in Medford. Well, you can look in your phone and see that, oh yeah, there is an In-N-Out Burger on Crater Lake Highway, and it gives credence to your friend's story that they drove from San Francisco to Portland. That's essentially what uh, archaeology accomplishes. The premise is that if an ancient historian's incidental details check out to be accurate time after time, this increases our confidence in the material that the historian wrote but cannot be readily cross-checked. Like you can't readily cross-check whether or not Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that happened a long time ago. But if all the architectural details in findings turn out to be correct, we can assume John was correct on that story as well. In the past 150 years, hundreds of archaeological, archaeological finds from the first century A.D. and from Old Testament times have been unearthed. Do these findings confirm or contradict the Bible? Archaeologists have discovered scores of ancient artifacts that have strengthened confidence in the Bible's credibility. For example, for years, scholars maintained that Moses couldn't have possibly written the first five books of the Old Testament because the Egyptians didn't have a writing form. Well, then, they discovered... Um, in 1975, 16,500 tablets were discovered in the ancient city of Ebla, modern-day Syria, which established sophisticated and extensive writing systems for the Egyptians in the middle of the 3rd century B.C., like 2500 B.C., years before Moses uh, came around to writing. Archaeologists discovered three different writing systems used by the Egyptians. Moses, a highly educated prince of Egypt, could have used any one of the three. Another archaeological dig in Jericho found that the walls fell outward. Well, if an enemy was circling around and attacking, and you know, they would fall inward. But outward adds credence to the biblical account that says, God called, caused 
the walls to come tumbling down. Scholars used to cite Sargon, referenced by Isaiah, to the king of Assyria as an example of an error because they couldn't find any mention of Sargon in Assyrian literature. Notice the assumption. If it's written in the Bible and we can't find any other evidence from the Assyrians about this person, then what the Bible said must be wrong. Well, then, recent archaeology has turned up plenty of evidence that Sargon was king of Assyria. The Bible mentions the Hittites over 40 times. Since secular history made no mention of the Hittites, critics use this as an example of biblical error. Then in 1906, an archaeological dig uncovered the Hittite capital in modern-day Turkey. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that talks about the crucifixion of the Messiah. Crucifixion didn't come about until the Romans introduced it in the first century. But there's all this talk about crucifixion in the Psalms. So critics said, well, Psalm 22 must have been written after the fact, after Jesus died. Well, then, when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found the Psalms dated hundreds of years before Christ. And Psalm 22 is right there. And it's talking about, you know, his dehydration. Uh, do you have Psalm 22, Pat? Yeah. So uh, let's look at some of these uh, verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Remember Christ cried that out from the cross? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults. Remember all the people insulting Christ when he's carrying the cross and when he's on the cross, shaking their heads? He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You know, they, they cried that when he was on the cross. If he's really the Son of God, let God save him. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. That's what would happen in a crucifixion and it happened to Christ. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like potsherd. Remember when Christ cried out, please, I, I thirst Give me something to drink. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. They pierce my hands and feet. That's what you do in a crucifixion. That's how you attach the person to the cross. They divide my clothes among them. Remember, they cast lots for his clothes while he's hanging on the cross. And so now archaeology has shown that this was a real prophecy, supernaturally given hundreds of years before the death of Christ. John 5 records how Jesus healed an invalid by the pool of Bethesda. John provides detail that the pool had five porticos, like porches, colonnades. For a long time, people criticized this as an example that John doesn't know what he's talking about because they never found any five porticos. And then archaeologists found by the Sheep Gate, 40 feet beneath Jerusalem. And on our trip to Israel, we should see this. Porches, just like John described, five of them. Uh, archaeologists have also unearthed the Pool of Siloam, 
John 9, Jacob's well at Sychar, John 4, the pavement where Pilate tried Jesus, John 19, and Solomon's porch in the temple precincts. Interestingly, all of these finds are from John's gospel. Remember the Jesus seminar we talked about two weeks ago? They coated that all black, meaning it was wrong. It was inauthentic. 1961, an inscription discovered in Caesarea, providing for us the first extra-biblical corroboration that Pilate was the governor of Judea during the time of Christ. In 1990, the burial grounds of Caiaphas were found. The high priest, they found those in Jerusalem. In Luke 3, chapter 1, we read, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, notice Luke does this throughout his gospel and in Acts. All these historical details. So now we can look back and we see if those are true, we can believe everything else Luke says. Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, whatever, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Luke refers to Lysanias being the tetrarch of Abilene about 27 AD. For years, scholars pointed to this as an example that Luke didn't know what he's talking about. Because everybody knows Lysanias was not a tetrarch, but rather the ruler of Chalcis half a century earlier. If Luke can't get that detail right, why should we believe anything else? That's when archaeology stepped in. An inscription was found from the time of Tiberius, the emperor, which names Lysanias as Tetrarch in Abilon, Abilene, near Damascus. Just as Luke had written, Luke was shown to be exactly right. Another example is Luke's reference in Acts 17.6 to Polytarchs in the city of Thessalonica. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the Polytarchs, city officials, Polytarchs, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. For a long time, critics said Luke was mistaken because they couldn't find anything in Roman ancient writing about Polytarchs. Until an archaeological dig discovered an inscription on a first century arch that begins in the time of the Polytarchs. Archaeologists have found more than 35 inscriptions that mention Polytarchs, several of them in Thessalonica, just like Luke said. Again, the critics were wrong. Luke was right. The father of modern, modern archaeology, William Albright, said, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament record, talking about the Hebrew Miller Burroughs of Yale said, on the whole, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. This is from Yale, a liberal seminary. Nelson Gluck said, there has been no archaeological discovery to repudiate a single biblical reference. So archaeology has never found anything that proves that this is wrong. You with me? One writer wrote, Thanks to archaeology, we now have more information about Old Testament Abraham than we do of Abraham Lincoln.
A fourth reason we can believe the Bible is true is because of the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Louis Lapidus grew up as a Jew in Newark, New Jersey. His family never talked about the Messiah. It never came up. His parents got divorced when he was 17. It stabbed a hole in whatever belief he had in religion at the time. He thought, where is God in this? If religion is no good when you're in crisis, then what value does it have? After high school, he got drafted and went to Vietnam. At his orientation in Vietnam, he was told, 20% of you will die. The other 80% will either get a venereal disease or become an alcoholic or drug addict. He remember thinking, great. I don't even have a 1% shot at coming back normal. Well, he survived Vietnam, and he began a whole period of questioning. Alcohol, got into drugs, Eastern religions. Walking the Sunset Strip in L.A. one night, a street evangelist was talking about Jesus, and Louis gave the, the stock answer, hey, I'm Jewish. Jesus doesn't apply to me. But the guy responded. He said, have you read the Messianic prophecies? Well, that kind of set Lapidus back. He'd never heard of those. And so the guy gave him a, uh, he began reading to him from the Hebrew text prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And, and Lapidus thought, I grew up hearing those. So the guy gave him a copy of the Bible. He said, read it and ask the God of Abraham if Jesus is the Messiah. He began reading the Old Testament. He read over four dozen predictions about the Messiah in the Old Testament. They would come from the ancestry of Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. The Psalms foretold his betrayal, his accusation by false witnesses, his manner of death, being pierced in his hands and his feet, although crucifixion hadn't been invented yet, and then his resurrection. When he reached Isaiah 53, he was stopped cold. Isaiah 53 is all about the death of the Messiah. And uh, um, he read it. Uh, let me just read it. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. Talking about when Jesus, his, his appearance was so grotesque after the beating and the crucifixion. We held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. The people watching the crucifixion thought, Jesus got what he deserved. But he was pierced for our transgressions, his hands and feet. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The New Testament teaches that all the sins of the world were put on Christ on the cross. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Pilate was shocked 
when he asked Jesus, are you really the son of God? And, and all these other questions, Jesus did not answer a word. He was like led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, he died. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned to a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Jesus was assigned to the tomb of Arimathea, a wealthy Pharisee. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The Bible's filled with prophecies that couldn't have just happened by chance. It was foretold that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, come from the tribe of Judah, be born in Bethlehem, be called out of Egypt. Remember, Joseph and Mary took him to Egypt to flee from uh, King Herod, who's killing all the babies in Bethlehem. Ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Remember he did that on Palm Sunday? Be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's what Judas sold him out for. Die on a cross without any bones getting broken. Very unlikely, but it happened to Jesus. And rise again on the third day. Statistician Peter Stoner informs us of the odds that any man might fulfill all eight of these prophecies like Christ did would be one in ten to the 17th power. Or one in, look at that, 100,000, 100 million, 100 billion, 100 trillion. And then we run out of mathematical terms, so we just call it zillion. To comprehend this staggering probability, if we take 100 trillion trillion silver dollars, spread them out over the state of Texas, it would be two feet deep. Then Mark 1 blindfold a man and say, you can walk anywhere you want in Texas and pick out the one marked silver dollar. The chances of a person doing that would be the same, Stoner says, as Jesus fulfilling all eight of these prophecies. In other words, these prophecies were inspired by God. They were supernatural. So Jesus could fulfill them in the New Testament. Lepidus was so stunned by what he read, he decided to read the New Testament for the first time in his life. He opened to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. Matthew's initial words leaped off the page. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Louis thought, Whoa, wait a minute. He's one of us. He's a Jew. One night when he was with some friends in the Mojave Desert, he went off by himself. And he said to God, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But I want Jesus to come into my life. I am so messed up. I need him to change me. Louis has gone on to become possibly the leading expert on biblical prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New. The Bible records many other prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the Old Testament. I'll give you two. Prophet Daniel foretells four kings rising in Persia. 
the last, angering the Greeks. Greek ruler would then arise and conquer the world. His empire would be divided into four. Alexander the Great fulfilled that prophecy. Then in Ezekiel 25, we read the prophecy of Tyre being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and other nations participating. It would be laid bare like the top of a rock. Fishermen would spread their nets on the site. The debris from the destruction would be thrown into the sea, and the city would never be rebuilt. All of that has been fulfilled. The Quran has only two prophecies, and they're very vague. The Bible has dozens that are remarkably fulfilled, showing that the Bible is a supernatural document inspired by God. We can believe the Bible is true. So far, we have four reasons. The claims of the Bible. It claims to be inspired by God. You believe an ancient document unless it proves itself false. I don't find anything that's been proven false in the Bible. So I believe its claim that it's all inspired by God. The documentary evidence, the documents we have for the Bible are unparalleled with other ancient documents. We assume the other ancient documents are true. Why can't we assume the Bible's true? where we have all the more reason to believe the Bible is true. The scientific evidence, archaeology, has shown time after time claims made in the Bible are historically accurate and the fulfillment of biblical, biblical prophecy. It's, so, it's, it's unbelievable, all the prophecies that have been fulfilled. So you can believe the Bible is true, inspired by God. So this week, read the Bible Maybe with a whole new attitude, like, God, I believe this is true. This is coming from you. I want to meet with you today. I want to try to spend time with you every day. Parents, talk to your uh, children about why they can believe the Bible is true. Just kind of to review what we've talked about today. Now, next week, I want to share with you the most important reason we can believe the Bible is true, the teaching of Jesus. Jesus prophesied that he would be crucified, buried, and three days later, he would be raised again. And he pulled it off, demonstrating that he is the Son of God. And since he was raised from the dead, I'm going to believe what Jesus taught all day long. And so next week, we're going to talk, we're going to look at what did he teach about the Bible. Do not miss next week. Maybe you've heard enough today to say, I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to give my life to Him like Louis Lapidus did. I want to read the Bible myself and commit myself to reading the Bible this week. Let's pray. Father, thank You for reasons we can believe the Bible. There are people in the world who say the Bible's not true. It's filled with errors. The miracles didn't happen. Writers made this stuff up. But we have a lot of good reasons we've looked at why we can believe it's true. So we want to tell you we believe that, and we want to demonstrate it by reading it this week. I want to give you a moment just to pray. Tell God what you believe about the Bible. Tell him your doubts if you have some. Help him to work those through with you. You pray.
Thank you, Father. Thank you for giving us a word from you that we can read and learn about you and about Christ and about the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.